why could foods be inflammatory? Technically all food could be considered inflammatory. When you create energy, just literally to do anything, whether or not it's move my hands right now or to do a pull up or something like that, we generate these highly reactive molecules that can damage other cells. And so therefore, if we have damage, we have the inflammation to then heal that response. So you could consider any food that you eat inflammatory in that sense. Now, some of the foods that we eat that are like blueberries and kale, the, the whole unprocessed foods, they also have antioxidants in them, which have the ability to kind of neutralize these reactive molecules. Social media has it backwards. They tend to pull out these individual foods, which is not really the best way to think about it. And instead we want to look at the whole diet and what are the types of foods that may be leading to weight gain as an inflammatory idea. Hello and welcome to the Consistency Project Podcast. My name is Patrick Cummings. As always, I'm here with E.C. Sinkowski. Every week on the show, we aim to simplify the science of nutrition, health, and fitness, cutting through the noise to focus on the principles and practices that will help you perform better, feel better, and live better. Thank you so much for tuning in to the show. Hello and how are you, E.C.? Four shots of espresso in. <laughs> We're going to get peak E.C. in this episode. <laughs> She is caffeinated up. I cut uh, back a couple so. months ago, and I guess I just jumped into the deep end right now. So here we go. <laughs> Let's go. Amazing. All right. So uh, fully caffeinated EC. Here's what we got today. We've got uh, our main chat's going to be a breakdown of the six most prevalent social media myths that you get questions about that you see yourself. Uh, and we're going to talk about some things like whether you need to get more salt or less seed oil, or to avoid carbohydrates if we want to lose weight. We're going to wrap up the episode with a quick diet review. Specifically, we're going to be talking about one called the eating for your blood type, what it is, and if there's any validity behind its claims and prescriptions. All right. You ready to get into, you ready to wade into social media? Let's, let's try. All, it's a good thing I'm I was caffeinated really, for this. <laughs> I'm excited about this one. Um, okay. So what do we need to know? I mean, uh, as I, as I said, we're going to talk about some of the big social media myths. So that may be enough background, but what else do we need to know maybe to get into this conversation? Yeah. I mean, I think social media can almost um, end up being like the bizarro world of nutrition, right? The Seinfeld reference or whatever, but you, if you wrong clicks and you're just down into this rabbit hole where you're being told things that are completely opposite of what we know from, you know, the science. And I've been down those rabbit holes before, so I get it. I empathize with that. I, I think the good news here is it's actually quite easy to get out of the craziness of social media. I mean, I'm sent clips all the time of really odd stuff that I never see because I don't follow those accounts and I don't engage with them. So I think, you know, we get asked all the time, um, how do I understand what good nutrition information is? I think as we go through these myths, if you feel like you're following, you know, influencers or creators who are saying these things, this is a great thing, like unfollow them, get out of, <laughs> get out of bizarro world, right? Um, and I think with this too, I was hoping to sort of weave in some of the statistics about the standard American diet, because I think when you understand too how bad the standard American diet is, you'll also see why it's so easy to follow and fall into some of these trendy beliefs, because it's almost like anything can be better than what our current status quo is too. So I think there's going to be some interesting um, kind of uh, just observations here about what it is that's really our problems and then how not to fall into the gimmicks, but instead kind of to go for more of those principles that we highlighted even recently with the Blue Zones. Um, amazing. I can't wait to get into these. I think the first thing I just want to double click on, because you, you, you said it, but I don't always know that people hear it, which is social media gives us what we've shown social media that we want more of. 
And so if we're seeing these weird, bizarro, like, it's so funny. What I think about is like, when I'm looking for things for hotcakes, where we, where we kind of like, I send you like, wait, what is this? I get more of things that are like, oh, now I want to ask. It's responding to what we want. It's very good, whether it's TikTok or Instagram or YouTube. It's very good at saying, oh, you responded to that thing about that. Got it. Here's 10 more. Let's see if we can keep you here longer. And if you've indicated with your time and your little clicky clicks that you like something, that you're engaging with it, its goal, the algorithm's goal is to give you more of it so that you stay on longer so that you see more advertising. And so I think it's really important to recognize like all these crazy people are saying crazy things on Instagram. To your point, and I don't see it very often, it's because you've engaged with it, which means you are teaching it that you want more of it. So let's make sure we take a little bit of agency here and recognize that like our our social media feeds are ours and it's because of what we do on those various platforms. I just want to and, say that because I think it's really important. And even people will make comments. I know this was true about like the liver king. It's like, oh, I just follow him for entertainment. And it's like, yes, but even that engaging with that account is also going to start infiltrating accounts like it and stuff like that. And and then you have all this crap in your feed, you know? Yep. Totally. Okay. That might be a slight t- tangent. We can yeah, do another okay. episode. Yeah, that's a good tangent. <laughs> okay. So uh, as we let out, we've got six of these social media myths. Uh, I think we were joking. You tried to do five. You couldn't. couldn't <laughs> you just, and you probably could have done 10 if you just right. didn't stop yourself. So I'm going to go through. I'm going to list out the six, and then we're just going to check each one off uh, off the list. So we've got six. Number one, we should eat more salt. Number two, fruit has too much sugar. Number three, artificial sweeteners make you gain weight. Number four, seed oils are toxic. Number five, certain foods are inflammatory. And number six, carbs and insulin are the causes of weight gain. So let us dive into number one. Uh, People should eat more salt. Yeah, we did a few electrolyte podcasts at this point, two specific on just electrolytes and athletics, and then one also just on sodium and blood pressure. But this is a common question, you know, do I need to be supplementing with electrolytes? Um, And the main answer for most people is going to be no. So salt is the combination of sodium and chloride. The RDA for sodium is 2,300 milligrams per day. I guess I should say that um, those are both electrolytes. But anyway, the RDA for sodium is 2,300 milligrams per day. The current consumption of sodium in the U.S. is 3,390 milligrams per day. So 3,390 milligrams per day. It means most people are already more than 1,000 milligrams over what they currently need. And this is also in a population that on average is not exercising, i.e. not even sweating enough. And, you know, I do also think in the social media space, one of the things that we often see with nutrition is this idea that, you know, natural is always better. We've, we've talked on that before and that what our ancestors did is always better than modern lifestyle today. And so if we even go down that sort of rabbit hole and look at what our ancestors' intake of sodium was, which, of course, many people would argue that they were more active than we are, right? What I find in the literature is that our ancestors' intake of sodium was less than 1,000 milligrams per day, less than half of our current RDA, and less than a third of what our current average intake is. And this makes sense because when we look at where we get our sodium from, 80% of it comes from packaged foods, processed foods or restaurant stuff. It's not because of the salt shaker at home. And I think people probably in our kind of community don't even realize how much sodium is in the healthy processed stuff, the jerky, like the fruit and veggie soups or whatever it is, anything that's packaged, flip it over, look at the sodium. I think you're going to be surprised how so many healthy things can be 20 or 30% of your daily needs just in that one food. So, you know, I don't like always looking at what our ancestors did to let that 
decide what should be optimal today. But I think it's just interesting is that I see sometimes the people that are really for pushing for more salt are also these people who tend to also push the ancestral lifestyle, yet the ancestral lifestyle didn't have much salt. <laughs> now, one of the reasons we don't want too much salt is that it can be contributing to high blood pressure, which is then one of the risk factors of cardiovascular disease. Of course, we know it's never one thing. It's not just salt that dictates cardiovascular disease or high blood pressure, but it is one of the factors. Um, and so that's really why we don't want to just be like taking more salt for the sake of, you know, making sure we have plenty of electrolytes around. Now, is it possible that some people need more salt? Yes, of course, but we don't really know that until we measure it. And it's generally going to be people who are more active, who are continuously sweating for, let's say, two hours plus on more days than not. And that's just not a ton of people. That's just not a ton of people. Most people that I know who are regularly active are still in that hour or less. And so, yes, your diet's already going to cover it and your diet's already covering more than it needs to. And so I, I just think it's also really interesting that in this age of kind of, you know, everybody's unique and we can do all this health tech and we can do all this personalization with diet and stuff that then we just accept that, oh, I just need salt without even measuring what my baseline is, <laughs> right? So it's like, okay, maybe you do. Maybe you do need more sodium or maybe you need more, more electrolytes. But if we really want to get that answer, we're going to first have to figure out what your baseline is to make it personalized to you. Dig it. All right. Uh, myth number two, fruit has too much sugar and it's as fructose. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody probably guessed I was going to tackle this one. I think it's, I don't know, every quarter at least yeah. I have to do a fruit is not sugar post on social media, right? From the per yeah, from the person who advocates for two bananas. Right, right. The two banana <laughs> club is strong, right? So, um, yeah. I mean, I think the thing about what we hear about, you know, fruit is just the same as sugar. People will kind of compare fruit to, let's say, eating a candy bar. Oh, it's just the same type of sugar you get in, um, you know, a Snickers bar or something like that. And then I think the other thing that you'll often hear is what you kind of said. It's that type of sugar, fructose that people will be like, well, the fructose is so problematic and causing metabolic disease and things like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And both of those sort of arguments of it's just like candy or it's causing metabolic dysfunction, both of those lines of thought are missing the all-important context of dose, the second name of this podcast. Um, so yeah, like in terms of like fruit is just like candy type of thing, yes, they both contain the fructose molecules, but that's where the similarities end. The fruit has the vitamins and the minerals and then lots and lots of water. And the candy bar has not so many vitamins and minerals and not any real water, right? And so it's almost like they're the exact opposite. Where they overlap is way less of an area than where they're different, right? And I think what I thought was a fun thought experiment is I actually looked at what it would be to eat four 800 gram challenges in fruit just because it was summer season, right? So it's like pineapple and watermelon and mango. And so I looked at the calories from 3,200 grams of fruit and it was still less than one pint of ice cream, right? So it's like, who's eating 3,200 grams of fruit a day? Yet people will be like, oh, I treated myself to ice cream, right? So the dose is just so distinct. The other thing then when we're looking at, oh gosh, fructose is so damaging from the metabolic um, disease standpoint is you'll hear that argument because you'll hear that fructose is converted to fat in the liver. And that is true, but only if the liver gets enough fructose. And the reason why the liver, when you're eating fruit, doesn't get enough fructose is that fructose is converted into glucose in the small intestine. And so you can think about it as one of the papers we referenced in an earlier episode. It was like the small intestine shields the liver from fructose. And it works quite well so long as the dose isn't too great. When we start doing these big gulps, 
and we start taking too much sugar all at once in too much overall quantity, we can overwhelm that process and therefore then the liver gets more exposed to a higher fructose dose. So again, back to that concept of dose. And I just want to touch on a few other studies because you know, there's just no evidence for this stuff. There was this association study um, in 2020, and they were looking at what was the risk of metabolic disease when people were consuming soda versus consuming fruit. And guess what? The people consuming soda, the risk went up. The people consuming fruit, the risk went down. So if there was any similarities between fruit and soda that like played out in real life, we'd at least expect the risk to go in the same direction. Instead, they're going in opposite directions, right? When we look at um, what we're eating in terms of statistics, you know, it's a statistic I say all the time, 80% of people aren't eating enough fruit according to the USDA guidelines. We also know that in terms of our daily intake of added sugar and total fructose, yes, that has increased, but our consumption of naturally occurring fructose has decreased. And this is since like 1978, according to the stats. And then even final, like nail in the coffin, randomized controlled trials, tightly controlled studies where we're really measuring what people eat. We find that whole fresh fruit consumption promotes weight maintenance or even can help with um, weight loss. And so like, I have no idea, zero clue how this idea is still out there, still popular and still has um, traction. There's like no evidence for it. When you were, when, I think you said it was like 3,200 grams of the, the little 800 gram photon. So is the argument there that people are making maybe implicitly, maybe not directly, but they're saying that the dangers of fructose is higher than the dangers of calories? In other words, fructose matters more than calories do. Is that, that seems to me to be like the implicit argument and perhaps the only one that makes any, not that it makes sense, but it makes sense as to why somebody would say that. In, in other words, like calories don't matter. It's this fructose thing that's really dangerous. Yeah. They're not exactly the same thing, but fructose does have calories. Um, it's just that now compared to ice cream, there's also the fat that has um, calories. And in the fruit, there's going to be some glucose that has calories. So they are a little bit related in the sense of calories are measuring kind of just the overall quantity but they are unique. And so, yes, I do think people get that mixed up too. It's like, no, no, it's the fructose molecule. And yes, fructose molecule is kind of handled differently than fat. But then when we look at how it's handled, we still have to consider the ultimate dose of fructose. And you're not going to overwhelm the system when it's in that natural food form, even when looking at the specific fructose molecule. Okay. Number three, myth number three, artificial sweeteners make you gain weight. Yeah. You want to cause some controversy on uh, social media posts about artificial sweeteners for sure. Um, yeah, obviously we have the, you know, obesity epidemic. So there's lots of different reasons or lots of different ideas that people have about what is driving that. And definitely out there on social media, one of the ideas is that artificial sweeteners are kind of the cause of weight gain. When, it's excess calories that make us gain weight and artificial sweeteners do not contain calories. So artificial sweeteners in reality end up being a great tool to help people lose weight counter to all the fear mongering on social media. Right. Um, I do think there's this sort of never ending uh, debate about their safety. Um, again, kind of in that same realm of the natural is always better crowd or mantra that we hear. And I'll put a link to the, and the show notes kind of about the podcast we did on how they come up with these safety standards for artificial sweeteners. But some of the debate around the weight gain and artificial sweeteners is that there are these association studies that show that sweeteners are linked to obesity. And so remember with association studies, it's they ask people what they're eating. You know, you list out your diet and then we measure their body weight and we see if those things are correlated. And 
The problem with that to kind of say that artificial sweeteners cause obesity is maybe it's just that the people who are overweight are trying to lose weight. And so they're reaching for more artificial sweetener products in attempts to drive that weight loss, right? We can't say from something like that, that, oh gosh, if I consume more artificial sweeteners, I'm going to gain weight. It just happens to be some products that people who want to lose weight are using more frequently. And so that's why we have to go to those randomized controlled trials where we look and actually count the calories that people are eating who are using artificial sweeteners and not, not just sort of ask them about their diet and look at their kind of body weight. And we find in those randomized controlled trials, they help people lose weight. Um, I think some of the reason why this idea that artificial sweeteners, you know, cause weight gain is still out there is sort of this idea that that sweet taste makes people crave sugar more. So maybe the artificial sweeteners are really affecting our appetite. From what I understand, the binding sites for where we perceive sweetness is different for the artificial sweeteners from that of natural sugars, say, in our taste buds, and may actually be sending weaker signaling to kind of our brain in the sense of a reward response. And this makes sense because when we actually look at eating behaviors for people who consume artificial sweeteners and again, controlled trials, we don't find that their feeding behavior has changed. So there doesn't seem to be this sort of same reward that we get from having actual sugar. So all in all, weight loss does come down to total calories and using something like a diet Coke to replace a Coke is actually a great strategy for people who want to lose weight. You know, if you don't want to believe they're safe or use the data or look at, you know, that's fine. But in terms of a, a weight perspective, it really can be a good tool for people for that goal. Take it. All right. Myth number four, seed oils are inflammatory and toxic. Yeah, I definitely remember like around 2010, I was really in the same mindset of like, I'm not having any seed oils, but we called them vegetable oils. then. I don't know if you remember that. It was like, do I not do have yeah. canola oil, right? Do not. <laughs> um, turns out vegetable oils and seed oils are the same thing. So sometimes I wonder, are we just like recycling old topics to like, <laughs> you know, introduce a new fear to fight about, <laughs> you know, but vegetable oils are oils that are extracted from seeds or other parts of the fruit. So they're the same thing. And in the US, 90% um, of our vegetable oils or seed oils are the, are soybean, canola, corn, and palm. So just to give people some perspective of kind of which ones we're talking about. Now, from what I see, the two common arguments against vegetable or seed oils is that they're, quote, inflammatory or that they're, quote, toxic. The inflammatory aspect tends to be a discussion that these vegetable or seed oils contain a high amount of the polyunsaturated fats called omega-6s. And omega-6 fats are known as these inflammatory fats. And then the counterbalance to that is those omega-3 fats, which are known as the anti-inflammatory fats. And this is why there's the belief to supplement with fish oil to potentially counteract the inflammatory effects of omega-6. And we have a podcast on this we'll link to to go into all the details of that. But the, the broad brush here is that that's just too simplistic. You know, if you ever want to heal from an infection or if you ever want to get stronger after um, a strenuous workout, you are going to need inflammation. Inflammation is the signal to stimulate healing in the body. And so you need inflammation to some degree to be healthy. We need both omega-6 or omega-3. So just to always think omega-6 or vegetable oil is inflammatory is just way too simple. Now, the other reason I mentioned that people tend to fear these vegetable oils or seed oils is because they're kind of considered toxic. So during the cooking pro process, some of the fat molecules change their chemical structure and become what we say are oxidized and basically now take on a new molecule. And these new molecules are highly reactive and they can damage tissues in the body. 
and can at some dose become toxic. And so when you have these sort of mechanistic ideas or um, facts that, you know, omega-6 fats can be inflammatory in the body. And then we have some of these highly reactive molecules in the body. And then you look at our consumption of these vegetable and seed oils, which literally has skyrocketed since the 1950s. It all sort of makes sense to say that, okay, this is the reason why we have all these chronic diseases. And it's a nice kind of, I guess, summary of them. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's so, you know, popular on social media and it comes back around. But we already mentioned, you know, it really does come down to dose. And while I do think that people are eating too many seed oils or vegetables in their diet, it's not the oils per se. It's just because we're eating too much processed and fried food, right? And so that's why it's too much. Because if we then take somebody who's eating the right total calories in their diet, vegetable and seed oils are healthy. So it's more about how much total fat you have in your diet, how much total quantity you have in your diet than what oil you're using specifically. What's interesting about the oxidation of fats, I know we haven't talked on it too much. I did talk in, about it a little bit with Dr. Adrian Chavez's inter, um, interview, but this is really where people get concerned about, oh gosh, what cook, cooking oil am I using? And is the temperature of my oven too hot and stuff like that? Am I causing too much oxidation of the fats? There will be some oxidation of fats even at your house, but when you use the oil once, and it's at like kind of at your house, it's never going to amount to much to worry about it. Again, you're going to want to focus way more on how much oil I'm using than the oxidation of fats at home. Instead, it's the fried foods. When you go to either restaurants or grocery store products where these oils are used over and over again and are sitting out for a long period of time when the oxidation amount actually starts to become something more significant. And just finally, again, when we Go to the literature to see, okay, what happens with humans in controlled trials when we have more vegetable or seed oils in the diet? We find that it decreases their health risk. And so that's really because those vegetables and seed oils are pushing out saturated fats in the diet, which is actually a good thing, despite what the carnivore crowd will tell you. And so, you know, it's fine to have these hypotheses. And again, there's some ideas there about inflammation that, you know, at first, you know, blush could be interesting to explore. But when we go to the human studies and the research and see that falls apart, it's time to get rid of that myth. All right, moving right along. Myth number five, X food is inflammatory. In other words, a certain food is inflammatory. Dairy is inflammatory. Grains are inflammatory. Beans are inflammatory. These are the ones I was thinking of when I was kind of thinking about that. Um, yeah, so why could foods be inflammatory? Technically, all food could be considered inflammatory. When you create energy, just literally to do anything, whether or not it's move my hands right now or to do a pull-up or something like that, in that process of creating energy naturally, we generate these highly reactive molecules that can damage other um, tissues, damage other cells. And so therefore, if we have damage, we have the inflammation to then heal that response. So you could consider any food that you eat inflammatory in that sense. Now, some of the foods that we eat that are like blueberries and kale, the, the whole unprocessed foods, they also have antioxidants in them, which have the ability to kind of neutralize these reactive molecules. And so this is why you'll often hear about anti-inflammatory foods or typically are whole unprocessed foods because they contain these molecules that have the ability to kind of neutralize or dampen those um, highly reactive molecules. I think this is often how inflammatory foods are thought about in social media. Basically, if they have the antioxidants, if they're whole unprocessed foods, they're considered anti-inflammatory. And then if they're sort of more of the junk food, they're considered inflammatory. I just don't think that's very useful in terms of kind of 
the end result. I think that's a little bit too small scale and we're going to get to what I think we should focus on. But another reason why foods can be considered in inflammatory is a true allergic response. You know, I'm allergic to seafood or I'm allergic to um, soy or whatever it is. And those are the people that might have hives or the swelling of their throat or their tongue, or like the EpiPen, like truly severe allergic response. And certainly those people can think about, you know, <laughs> if you're allergic to seafood, you can certainly think about it as seafood is inflammatory to you. That's generally, though, not how the word inflammatory is used in social media. Finally, another way to think about how food could be inflammatory would be any food that contributes to your to somebody's weight gain, that should be considered inflammatory. And that's because fat tissue is inflammatory. When your fat tissue grows in size, it triggers an immune response. There we go. We've got then inflammatory signaling. And this is why obesity is linked to so many chronic diseases is because it is an inflammatory tissue. And it's really that third reason that I think is how people should be, I don't know, fearing is never the word I want to use with foods. But if like, if we're worried about what's inflammatory in the diet, we should think about what are the foods that are leading to my weight gain, not necessarily, oh gosh, it's dairy, <laughs> that's inflammatory, or oh gosh, it's beans, or oh gosh, it's um, grains. And again, I always like to say, if we are worried about a food like any of those I just mentioned, let's actually look at what consumption is because we first want to make sure those are the foods that we're really eating. And we find that we're not eating those foods, right? We find that 80%, more than 80% of people aren't eating enough beans. We find that almost 90% of people aren't hitting the right standards for dairy, which I think is about three cups a day. 98% of people aren't eating enough whole grains. I mean, that's, that's even worse than fruit. <laughs> so, you know, when we hear these things that these different food groups are so inflammatory, we have to go and see if we're eating them and we're not really eating them. Instead, when we look at what we're actually eating, we find that our total caloric intake has increased by about 700 calories since the 1950s. We find that processed foods, you know, pre-1900 used to be less than 5% and it's now than more than 60% of the foods we eat. We find that 60% of Americans exceed added sugar recommendations, 74% exceed recommendations for refined grains. 74% of us are overweight or obese. And so this is why we want to be cautious about the foods that are contributing to weight gain, which is all of this processed stuff that we're overeating. It's the dairy when it's mixed in ice cream. It's the grains when it's part of the brownies. <laughs> it's not long, that's no longer dairy or grains. It's now a food that we overconsume too much that can lead to weight gain and therefore increase our inflammation. And so again, Social media has it backwards. They tend to pull out these individual foods, which is not really the best way to think about it. And instead, we want to look at the whole diet and what are the types of foods that may be leading to weight gain as an inflammatory idea. All right. Myth number six, carbs and insulin make you gain weight, not calories. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to suggest that's wrong. Um, the carbs and insulin levels driving weight gain is definitely quite popular on social media. Um We've gone through it before, but I, I thought it'd be interesting to bring up another idea, and that is that popular weight loss drug, semaglutide. We actually talked about it, I guess, end of last year, but it's sold under Ozempic and Wegovy. Um, anyway, it's, it's super effective. We find that it can help people lose, let's say, 20% of their body weight, which is unprecedented for a weight loss drug. What's really interesting is semaglutide increases insulin production. And so this is the one of the reasons why it's been used for like type 2 diabetes, not just for weight loss, but for controlling blood sugar. Because when you can increase someone's insulin production, 
it allows that drop in blood sugar because it's now helping the body store that blood sugar into the cells and get it out of circulation. But then we also know it's helping people lose weight. And so it's here's a drug that's increasing insulin and helping weight loss. So it'd be really interesting to know how the people that are really um, proponents of insulin drives weight gain, how are they handling <laughs> the results from semaglutide, right? Or how are they kind of explaining that dichotomy? Then, of course, if we look at our controlled feeding studies um, and we look at what happens when you either give people relatively low-carb diets or relatively low-fat diets, we find that so long as the calories are controlled, it doesn't matter. And that's the whole paper in the show notes. And there's been multiple studies and not just one on that. I think one of the other hangups that maybe the, the carbs and insulin crowd has, and the, oh, it's not calories, it's carbs. I think one of the hangups they also might have is they tend to make this argument that, you know, eating 100 calories of a cookie is not the same thing as eating 100 calories of broccoli. And to me, it's sort of like, yes, their caloric content is the same. <laughs> and that caloric content has the same influence on weight, but there are other properties of the food which make them very different, right? The fiber and the water weight of the broccoli is not the same thing in the cookies. And that fiber and that water weight has a very um, filling nature to it that then affects appetite, right? When the cookie also has a lot more sugar, which registers more on the dopamine and can start affecting more of the cravings and stuff like that. And so sometimes I think this, you know, the, the people that are like calories doesn't matter. It's more that they're trying to argue that there are other distinguishing properties of a food be and to me, that's just sort of like, yes, like calories is one thing. <laughs> and then we also have other characteristics or nutrients that we also need to think about. Um, but that doesn't refute the fact that the overall caloric load of a diet is driving the ultimate weight of the person. Take it. Okay. So those are your six myths. I think I just have one kind of wrap up question. Um, and it maybe harkens back a little bit to what we started this conversation with about like, something you're doing is giving you the, this this quote unquote information, right? Maybe it's misinformation. And so I would love to hear from you. And again, this feels like, oh, it's, it's obvious, but I'd love your take on it anyways, which is what do we get when we stop subjecting ourselves to this kind of stuff? These kinds of people saying these kinds of things, like what, what is on the other end of a social media feed that is cleansed, <laughs> I'll use a nutrition term, cleansed of these kinds of myths and the people who continue to recycle them time and time and time again. Like what do we, like what is what is the benefit of putting in a little bit of effort to make sure we're not subjecting ourselves to this kind of stuff? Peace, um, less frustration, actual progress. <laughs> That sounds really nice to me. You know, when you open up social media, it's not like, oh my God, everything is wrong. And oh my God, I'm dying. And just like, oh, okay, yeah, that's an interesting habit or that's a cool idea or I really like that meal. Let me try that one this Friday. It's just a little less reaction airy, I guess. A um, little bit more focused on how you're actually going to make real change. I don't know. I don't see a downside. <laughs> Neither do I. It strikes me as something we've talked about a lot, which is the worried well. Um, and it strikes me as like, this is what these myths, ultimately, they they prey on folks who are worried that there's one little thing they're doing wrong, one little danger that they haven't taken out of their lives yet, that that might be the, the trigger for all the bad things. Or if they just do the thing, everything will start to work better for themselves. Mm -hmm. 
Totally. And that's how these influencers draw, you know, traction and attention, right? Like they need to have some, they don't need to. There's there's people that try to preach the basics and there's there's a good number of them and uh, more power to them. But there are some people that realize they can really capitalize on by being different. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's what they that's how they draw the market is like, oh, this is one thing. I know it. I know the secret. Love that. OK, thank you. See, we're going to jump into a diet review in just a few seconds. But first, I just want to make sure I want to rather ask folks out there, if you like this here uh, episode or the show in general, or really anything that EC is doing, the best way to help us continue to grow uh, the show and and the work that EC is doing is to share an episode or share the podcast with a friend or a cousin or a colleague or somebody who you think might uh, benefit from a little more of this clarity <laughs> that EC was just speaking about. We thank you in advance for doing so. Okay, let us close out this episode. Uh, we're going to start doing, at the end of some episodes, quick diet reviews. We've done episodes where we've done two or three or four set of reviews in an episode, and we've certainly done episodes where we've talked about just one particular diet, the autoimmune protocol. Is that what, what it was called? That one we did a whole episode on. We've done one on uh, longevity diets. And so we're going to just do a quick little close on uh, this week. We're going to do eating for your blood type, which I know nothing about, but I can guess at because at least it's named well. Yeah. Yeah. So it was created by a naturopathic physician, PJ Diarmo, Diarmo, something like that. Um, and so, yeah, you eat according to your blood type. I don't think that needs too much explanation. Um, and the theory was behind it that our blood types developed over time. And so the blood type that you have is going to be reflective of a certain time in history when they were eating certain foods. And so, like, if you have type O, according to the blood type diet, uh, we're going to get into <laughs> what's accurate and not. Uh, if you have type O blood, for example, that would be more of the ancestral diet. And so you're going to be focused more on meats and definitely don't have any grains. Um, group A was considered then to be the next sort of evolution. And that would be more of the agrarian. So there's a, a higher consumption of grains and then fruits and vegetables. And then group B was considered more of the nomadic um, kind of ancestors. And so that would definitely have more dairy. And then as far as I understand, like AB people are kind of a mix of all <laughs> mix of A and B, but then they have some certain food restrictions that are different from A and B. And so that's the premise. What really struck me about this, especially after what we just talked about, all of the different um, statistics of what we're currently eating, it's like, of course, this is going to quote work. I mean, you're basically telling people to eat more whole foods in different arrangements, right? Some people are going to eat more meat. Some people are going to eat more fruits and veggies. Some are going to eat more dairy. But none of them were go eat more Pop-Tarts and donuts. <laughs> <laughs> there was the blood type for Pop-Tarts and donuts. I right, exactly. <laughs> and so this is the thing about all these trends on social media. It's like, you know, why did this weird, wacky diet work? Why did the celery juice diet work? It's like, well, it wasn't Pop-Tarts and donuts. And it turns out that we have more Pop-Tarts and donuts in most diets than we should, right? And so it's like, can these various blood type diets work? Well, it turns out when we actually look at the literature, yes, they can, but it doesn't matter what your blood type is. <laughs> you can have type O blood and be successful on the AB diet and vice versa and every permutation of that under the sun. Um, you know, and... What's really interesting to me about this whole thing is, well, there's a couple, th there's, there's a few things. Let's get into the meat of it. 
First of all, as far as I understand, and I'm not the blood type expert, there's actually still some debate or discussion if it really was the evolution of type O to type A to type B to type AB or whatever the progression in the book is. Like, I don't think there's consensus of how the different blood types came to be from a timeline point of view. So, and I know that was true as of the time the first book was published, 1996. There was definitely discussion about that. And so it's like, to come out with a book where your premise is that these blood types occurred in this order, but yet that wasn't even proven is interesting. Um, the other thing was in the book, and the first one came out in 96, the second one came out in 94, supposedly from according to one of these PubMed articles that um, the author references clinical trials that were expected to be completed within two years and 12 weeks. There's no evidence of them being done, being completed, the data shown. <laughs> and yet 7 million copies of this thing were sold, translated in 60 languages. And no evidence for it. No evidence for it. One, the premise, the person doesn't know if it's correct. The blood types evolved in that way. Two, didn't have evidence the diet worked. St successful, wildly successful diet book. Wow. <laughs> that is pretty fascinating. And I'd never heard or thought of the idea that blood types are somehow like linked to time. time. Mm. Yeah, I, I definitely wasn't. Uh, aware of that either before this. Um, it, as far as I understand, it is legitimate that blood types are linked to different increases in various diseases. Like having a certain blood type can make you more susceptible to X, Y, Z disease. So I don't think it's wrong to have had that thought, right? Like, whoa, okay, well, maybe my blood type does influence kind of my nutrition choices like that. Like, I don't think the hypothesis is wrong. I think what's wrong is that you know, going to market with the idea before any part of the underpinnings of it has been shown to be true. <laughs> yeah. And and maybe just to link a little bit of the two conversations we've had here with the social media and this particular book, it's something we've talked about before, specifically around uh, marketing and diet books, which is like these things aren't really fact-checked. They're not held to a certain standard where you've got to prove these three things in order to, for the publisher to say, okay, we've checked those off the list and now we can go to market. It's really, it's, it's, it's not that. And so what happens is that it, people respond to something in it and that response, other people respond to that response and like, oh, a million people read that book. That must be valuable. So now the next two million, the next three million, the next six million people read it because the first million people read it. And it's not because, to your point, the first million people had this wildly effective lifestyle change, whatever. It's just that people responded to the thing that everybody else responded to. And it's the same thing on social media to your point about the, the, you know, we've talked about the liver King before, right? Well, yeah, like, oh, I was just watching it for fun and for entertainment. But what happened was he got a lot of visibility, a lot of traction, a lot of engagement. Other people saw that and said, I want the same engagement. I want the same attention. I want the same profits on the other end of it. And so that's what I have to do. And even though I think the liver King's crazy, I'm using the same basic tactics to do it. And then it becomes a snowball where, well, that that's what we have to do to get attention and make money, quite frankly. So that's what we do. And it's not because it's based in truth or fact or anything that you would appreciate, but it's only because people responded to it first. And then people said, and then people had incentive to say, oh, I want the same thing. All great stuff there. I like your first point too, about like the books come to be because there's an audience and because there's a publisher. 
that's that's why they come to be. And I know that there's flaws of the peer-reviewed system online, and I know that it's not perfect, and people get faulty research published, but there's a system to check, at least. <laughs> it's not the same for diet books. Not the same at all. And so, yeah, a lot of stuff in the mainstream space, and I think we've talked about this before, like what's the harm of irrelevant data? And unfortunately, there's so much that infiltrates the mainstream and people end up trusting it more because their friend did it, their friend read it or whatever it is, and then we don't trust the government. But it's like some of these more what people would consider kind of archaic structures do have more checks and balances in place, right? Great. All right. Thank you, EC. Uh, Thank you, everybody out there for listening. Thank you for your ratings and your reviews. And one more time, if you do enjoy the show, please do share it with a friend. Uh, It does help us continue to get to do the show. So thank you in advance, EC. And I will be back next week for another episode of The Consistency Project.